Good morning. Happy Sabbath. I don't know if we ever explained the uh, the video intro. Um, for those of you who are a bit more familiar with the ministry of our church, um, we have um, a website where we live stream our services. And so um, whether it's live streaming or whether it's uh, people going back later on and watching the videos, that video intro is a means to just tell the viewer, hey, the sermon is coming next. And so um, it's not really like a fanfare of get ready for the preacher. It's more just whoever's watching online can say, okay, now it's time for the actual um, message portion of, of the service. So New Year's is a time of change, and it's that time of year again. I don't know. Has anyone here made New Year's resolutions? I'm curious. All right. Uh, we have one person brave enough to raise their hand. Thanks, Sam. <laughs> um, there's a bit of change in my life. I don't know if you tell already, but there's some metal gear in my mouth. And um, I've got braces. And uh, I remember in high school being deathly afraid of braces because, like, oh, it's going to hurt and it's going to change my face. And anyway, it was just a good time to get braces. And so this is my – it's not really a New Year's resolution. I don't have to do anything. I just have to bear with it. Last night I was tempted to call the dentist and just say, all right, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> it's quite annoying to eat with these things. But anyway, if you stare at my mouth, I'm not going to be offended. If you want to ask questions, you can. But anyway, those are braces. Your eyes are not lying to you. Um. So this year marks the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And uh, about a month ago, Jin Ha preached the first part of a two-part series. The following week, I was supposed to stand up here and share the second part, and I grew sick right before church. And so um, I called Christian Capucciano up, and I was like, hey, Christian, are you coming to church? And that was like a whole 60 minutes before church service. So I gave him plenty of notice. You know, that's that pretty good. And he was like, yeah, I'm coming to church. And I was like, can you do me a favor, man? I just threw up. Can you preach? And he said, yeah, I'll come preach. And so I just, I'm so grateful that uh, that Christian was able to jump in and, and help us out. So today I'm going to be finishing that two-part series. Um, the message is entitled 500 Years of Reformation. What are we protesting now? And I thought this was fitting because, well, we're right up on the cusp of New Year's, and it's a time where we make New Year's resolutions, resolutions for change. And so I thought we would kind of give the 500 years of dramatic change one more nod, and um, we'll kind of share a little bit of a Bible. Uh, we'll, we'll share some scripture with you. Now, before I get into the meat of today's message, um, I want to share a bit of background of the Protestant Reformation. So I'm going to share the historical context of the Reformation the effects of the Reformation, how the Reformation was started, and then I'm going to challenge you to continue on the protest. Now, I realize this is a bit ambitious considering how long we usually preach, but here we go. So the context of the Reformation. The Reformation took place in the midst of the Renaissance, and the Renaissance is a period in European history that spanned around 300 years, and this led to massive change and development in philosophy, art, science, music, and religion. Now, for about a thousand years, and I'm just going to focus on religion here. For a thousand years, the church was universal. It was united in name. There were no Christian denominations, there was only Christianity. It had absolute authority over the will of God. The Pope considered absolute and infallible. 
Well, in 1378, something significant happened. The cardinals selected a pope, hope they would follow. During that 40-year period, both sides of the papacy would re-elect leaders as former leaders would pass away. And to make matters worse, at the Council of Pisa, the cardinals decided that division in leadership was not healthy, and the leadership tried to reconcile the two popes. This meant that one pope had to step down, or both popes had to step down. What was the result? Well, neither of the popes stepped down. And so what did the council do? They elected a third pope. Now imagine this, three different individuals claiming, I am the representative of God on earth. You need to listen to me. And so now the nations which now had to choose between two popes had to choose between three popes. The religious landscape was plagued by division and corruption. And eventually the church would reunite under one leader, but this significantly hindered the influence that the church had. Because of the Renaissance, new ideas that cultivated humanism and individuality came up, and, the, and, and very importantly, inventions such as the printing press came about. So this is the historical context in which the Protestant Reformation takes place. So how did the Reformation affect the world? The Reformation is probably the single most significant religious event that would influence the modern world. The Bible, which before was only available in Latin, was now printed in common languages and widely distributed. Different Christian denominations were formed based on different ways of interpreting scripture. And this led to divisions throughout not only the religious landscape, but the political landscape as well. There was a progressive change in styles of government. At first, kings and rulers gained greater authority as the political power of the church decreased. Then as a result, or then as authority was no longer seen as a divine right, it would eventually lead to an end of medieval feudalism. Common people had a greater desire to participate in democracy, and the Reformation would eventually change how certain nations were governed. Now, non-nobility could hold positions of power based on influence instead of birthright. The Reformation, true to its name, brought about change. So what event started the Protestant Reformation? Historians generally point to the circulation of the 95 Theses written by Martin Luther as the beginnings of the Protestant Reformation. It was during this, ta it was during this time that St. Peter's Basilica was being rebuilt and the church decided to sell indulgences or self-forgiveness as a means of raising money. People could buy their own forgiveness. They could buy the forgiveness of loved ones. They could also buy the forgiveness for the dead. What a great way to make it to heaven. Martin Luther, who was a professor of theology, was really disturbed by the selling of indulgences. And so he wrote the 95 Thesis in response to what he saw. And he sends the paper to the Pope in hopes that the Pope would realize the effects that the selling of indulgences would have on the church. And what happened was that the paper was widely circulated to different nobility, to different church leaders, and it caused this stir. And people began to wonder, hey, here's this one professor who is respected, and he challenges the authority of the church. Now, what I've done is I've highlighted select thesis to show you why this paper caused such a reaction from the papacy and the rest of Europe. But I, really, I, I highly recommend you read through the whole 95 Thesis in its entirety. You know, the, 
the Protestant church was birthed from this one document. It's really interesting to read through uh, Martin Luther's take on what he was seeing at that time. So here are a few insights that I want to share. One is that Luther cares about genuine repentance. Luther thinks that the selling of indulgences have become barriers to true holiness. And he's worried that the church is going to focus on forgiveness that can be bought and forget about taking care of more important matters, such as taking care of the poor, which would happen if genuine repentance were experienced. So here are the first three theses. The Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when he said, repent, willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. This word cannot be understood to mean sacramental penance, i.e. confession and satisfaction, which is administered by the priest. Yet it means not inward repentance only, nay, there is inward repentance which does not outwardly work diverse mortifications of the flesh. So, Luther here is saying, listen, repentance is, really op- uh, repentance is really important. It should produce outward change, not just something that causes you to give money to the church or go through some uh, formalistic ritual. But notice he continues on. Apostolic pardons are to be preached with caution, lest the people may falsely think them preferable to other good works of love. Christians are to be taught that the Pope does not intend the buying of pardons to be compared, to en- uh, compared in any way to works of mercy. Christians are to be taught that he who gives to the poor or lends to the needy does, not, does a better work than buying pardons. See, Luther here is just really stressing the importance of genuine, genuine repentance. And what you're going to see here, usually when we think of the 95 Thesis, we kind of say, this is Luther's kind of rebellion to the church. This is his way of saying, take this, Pope. But if you read through the 95 Thesis, you see him struggling with the authority of the church. You see him following the Pope with his heart, but he's so familiar with Scripture that he he rebukes the Pope with his head. We keep on going in the 95 Thesis. And I haven't gone in order just because uh, I'm really going to share points as opposed to going through in order. The Pope... cannot remit any guilt, except by declaring and showing that it has been remitted by God, or to be sure by remitting guilt in cases reserved to his judgment. If his right to grant remission in these cases were disregarded, the guilt would certainly remain unforgiven. God remits guilt to no one unless the same time he humbles him in all things and makes him submissive to the vicar the priest." So what you see here is Luther's actually saying, hey, you need to give um, credit where credit is due. We need the Pope's forgiveness. We need the priest's forgiveness. But if you continue on, therefore, the Pope, when he uses words plenary remission of all penalties, does not actually mean all penalties, but only those imposed by himself. Nevertheless, the remission and participation in the blessings of the church, which are granted by the Pope, are in no way to be despised, for they are, as I have said, the declaration of divine remission. So notice here, he's kind of, once again, giving homage to the Pope. 
27. They preach only human doctrines who say that as soon as the money clinks into the money chest, the soul flies out of purgatory. Those who believe that they can be certain of their salvation because they have indulgence letters will be eternally damned together with their teachers. Now, I have a question. If the teachers of those who are preaching indulgence are going to be damned, who is damned? All of Catholicism. So here he's really struggling with that idea of I need to give homage to the Pope and at the same time he's doing something that's really terrible. Any truly repentant Christian has a right to full remission of penalty and guilt even without indulgence letters. So here we go. Luther is saying you don't need anybody to experience true repentance and salvation. Well, if that's the case, do you need the priest? Do you need the vicar? And the answer is no. Christians are to be taught that if the Pope knew the exactions of the indulgence preachers, he would rather that the Basilica of St. Peter be burned to ashes than built up with the skin, flesh, and bones of his sheep. Christians are to be taught that the Pope would and should wish to give of his own money, even though he had to sell the Basilica of St. Peter to many of those from whom certain hawkers of indulgence cajole money. The assurance of salvation by letters of pardon is vain, even though the commissary, nay, even though the Pope himself were to stake his soul upon it. Can you imagine? Luther writes this and thinks, you know what? I'm going to send this to the Pope. And so he sends this to Rome, genuinely thinking, I think he's going to change. I think he's going to like this letter. And so Luther's just kind of waiting there, waiting for change. And what happens instead is the administration calls Luther and says, you need to come here because you're in big trouble. I just kind of wonder what kind of a personality was Martin Luther to be able to write these 95 theses where in the beginning he's kind of honoring the Pope and later on he's like, you know what? You should burn that building down if you're not going to do the right thing. It, he, he's such an interesting character. Luther saw that the church was convoluting the glory and the character of God. The institution that was set up to promote right and just living had an agenda that perpetuated selfishness. Luther protested that agenda. He protested that selfishness because he saw these teachings, these agendas are keeping people from encountering God. Paul in the book of Romans highlights a similar problem among believers. He calls this problem idolatry. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. Romans chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 18 to 23. And I'll invite you to read along as I narrate. <clears throat> Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. In verse 18, the second half of it, Paul says that there are wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. 19, they know the truth about God because he made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky, 
Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So to summarize this passage, Paul is saying that truth is suppressed by idolatry. Truth is suppressed by idolatry. Today I just want to focus on two aspects of idolatry that suppresses the truth of God. Idolatry suppresses the truth of God because it substitutes God for something else. Idolatry also suppresses the truth of God because it limits God. It limits who God is. As soon as you put form to God, you miss out on another aspect of God that already exists. Let me spend a moment on substitution. What I mean by that is there are times where we substitute God with different things. In Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 to 13, I'd like us to read this together. Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 to 13. It's page 553 for those of you who are using those white Bibles. Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 to 13. Now the story of this is that Syria and Israel are plotting against Samaria. And the reason why this is a big deal is because Israel and Samaria, they're allies. They're kind of, they're even related to each other in a lot of cases. And Israel kind of thinks, you know what, we want to destroy Samaria. And so they kind of ally themselves to this pagan powerful nation and so what happens is the king of Samaria whose name is Ahaz really starts worrying about this he's thinking hey our own cousins our own brothers are betraying us what do we do and so God sends the prophet Isaiah to Samaria to encourage Ahaz and here's the story starting from verse 10 actually it's 554 it's like the very next page over okay verse 10 Later, the Lord sent this message to King Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign of confirmation, Ahaz. Make it as difficult as you want, as high as heaven or as deep as the place of the dead. But the king refused. No, he said, I will not test the Lord like that. Verse 13, then Isaiah said, listen well you royal family of David. Isn't it enough to exhaust human patience? Must you exhaust the patience of my God as well? This is such an interesting interchange. God sends this prophet to Ahaz and he says, ask for anything. What would you ask for if you had that chance? This is kind of like that genie moment where it's like you've got three wishes, right? You can ask for anything and this actually happens in real life. God asks Ahaz, anything you want. And Ahaz's response, no, I can't inconvenience God that way. You know, it's almost a pious response. He's actually being a Christian by saying, 
How can I test God? How can I inconvenience God? I won't do it. And you would think that God would respond by saying, Ahaz, you're such a faithful person. But instead, he's saying, you are so exasperating. Like, why aren't you asking for a sign? God rebukes Ahaz instead. See, it is possible to replace a meaningful relationship with God with our own goodness. And it's like Ahaz is saying, God, I don't need, I don't need your miracle. I don't want your miracle. And he almost replaces that with his own piety. You know, it's possible to come to church but not know or submit to God. It's possible to be a good person, to donate your time and your money to charity and not know or submit to God. Idolatry in this form states that our goodness is good enough. And by focusing on what we are doing, we miss out on what God wants to do. God, I don't need your salvation. I'll just be a good person and live a moral, life, a moral upright life. Another example of substitution or replacing God is instead of, being willing to, uh, instead of being willing to continually learn about God in the present, we worship what God has done in the past. There's a story of this bronze serpent. And what happens is that God uses this bronze serpent to heal Israel at a time where uh, they're being bitten by these poisonous snakes. And in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4, later on in the future, there's a king named Hezekiah. And the Bible says that Hezekiah removed the pagan shrines, smashed the sacred pillars, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke up the bronze serpent that Moses had made because the people of Israel had been offering sacrifices to it. The bronze serpent was called Nehushtan. <clears throat> So God uses this bronze serpent in the past to bring healing and teach valuable spiritual lessons, but Israel turns that very lesson into a God itself. You know, it's possible to elevate church traditions in an unhealthy way that gives people the impression God only works in certain ways. We could talk about music, we could talk about liturgy. It's basically that idea that this is how I was raised, this is how I have experienced God in the past, and that can create hindrances to how God wants to interact with others today. And, and there's a balance here. I'm not saying we, should, we shouldn't disregard anybody's preference to how they want to run a church service. But my point is, God doesn't want us to worship the worship. He wants us to worship Him. I like what Kleber Gonsalves says. He says, there are two kinds of music in the church. Music I like and music that I don't like. And God seems to use them both. So we've talked about substituting God with piety. We've talked about substituting God with what he has done in the past, relying on our past experiences, but then not seeing what God is doing in the present. And then there's that second form of idolatry that I'd like to spend some time on, and that's the kind of idolatry that limits God. The kind of idolatry that limits God. See, idolatry focuses on certain attributes of God's divinity and highlights those attributes. So when people see animals, they think, wow, that animal is powerful, and they create an image to that animal. But the reality is God is more than that animal. So then what do you do then? Then you start multiplying the different kinds of idols, and what happens is you've got all these singular entities that don't represent God in his fullness. 
See, the problem with that is as soon as you highlight one aspect, you miss out on another. This limits God's glory, and people have a skewed understanding of who God is. You know, in the Adventist context, the Ten Commandments, for example, our understanding of dietary regulations in the Bible, our stance on human sexuality, and I'm not saying these are not important, but I'm saying it's possible to condemn and reject people from community because of these anti or and become antagonistic towards those who don't live or believe the way that we do. Our zeal to defend truth can block people from understanding the fullness of God's glory. And one might say, you know what? Keeping the commandments is knowing God. Being healthy is knowing God. My convictions on human sexuality are an act of worship to God. And that may be true, but you can also be an expert in all these things and not know how to communicate Jesus, his love for humanity, his mercy, his patience, his goodness. And by doing so, this diminishes the ability of God to communicate just how much he loves and just how worthy he is to be worshipped. Sometimes our truth can become barriers for genuine worship. And I'm not saying disregard them. I'm saying make sure you grasp the fullness of God in your convictions, not limiting who God is in your witness. In the Bible, in John chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, it introduces Jesus in such a unique way. There's a contrast of what Moses did and what Jesus is going to do that's better than what Moses did. Notice here it says in verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. So notice here, John is saying there's a balance between truth and mercy. Moses brought about truth, but nobody, nobody understands the unfailing love of God. And there's one person who rightly represented that. That's Jesus Christ. So don't miss out on that balance between truth and mercy. And the reality is, innately, we understand what is right. I have never given Joshua a lesson on what it means to be just. But when somebody comes and takes his little bunny from him, he knows something is wrong. Right? He scrunches up his face and he's like, there's a terrible, terrible sin that has occurred. Somebody took his bunny. Right? He knows. Nobody had to teach him that. But when it comes to mercy, how many times do we see great examples of unfailing love? Hence, Jesus came to reveal how truth and mercy can be balanced. You know, when I started writing this sermon, I was kind of like, all right, how many different kinds of idolatry can I think of? And I realized I'm just going to go forever. There are so many things to be upset about, so many things to protest. And part of our identity as Christians is to protest injustice. But what I want to highlight about the Protestant Reformation, as we look back 500 years into history, is that there are some things that still have not changed. 
500 years into this commitment of being a distinct follower of Jesus Christ, and the church still has stuff that they're working through. And, you know, for me, one of the most interesting things about reading through the 95 Thesis is that Luther, at that point in time, the beginnings of the Reformation, still loves the Pope. That's interesting to me. And so... What I want to challenge you with, as we've talked about different forms of idolatry, if we've ta- as we've talked about different things to protest, is that idea of as you protest, keep in mind, there are some things that just haven't changed, but it will change. I think sometimes we get into that mindset of, you know what, some things will never change. And that's just not true. 500 years, tons of things have changed, and some haven't. There's a Bible text that I would like you to consider as we close. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 18. The way of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, which shines ever brighter until the full light of day. Have any of you ever slept in a room that has really good drapes, where you wake up and it's absolutely dark in the room? I've had maybe two experiences, because I usually sleep in rooms that don't have good drapes. But there are about two instances that I can remember where I slept. I woke up, and the room was absolutely dark. And I kind of thought, man, it must be like 5 a.m. And I open the drapes, and it's like 11 (laughs) a.m. And the light is just blinding. And what I like about this passage is like God is kind of giving this counsel of how to manage change. And he says that for the righteous, it's kind of like this dimmer switch where you're slowly, slowly cranking that light up so that you can take it in, where your eyes can adjust and you can manage that change. The righteous are on a committed path of reformation, of continual reformation. I'm saying this with braces in my mouth. You know, (laughs) these things put a tiny bit of pressure on my teeth to the point where it's just bearable. It's so uncomfortable. And, you know, when I'm eating, it's actually a a massive chore. And, like, I'm chewing and, like, it, it hurts my teeth. And there are times where change causes pain, but just, like, a little bit of pain. But retrospectively, as you look back, you realize that change was good. You know... The Protestant Reformation is a challenge to the church to continually be committed to that type of change, to continually be committed. Yes, this is painful, but it's for the better. It's going to help us out in the future. And there's this challenge where God is saying, listen, just bear with the light. And as you adjust to it, crank it up a little bit more, and you will experience my glory. You will experience salvation. You will experience what it means to know God. May you experience the blessing of God as you... Commit yourself to reformation. May God bless you.